Let's pray together before we begin. Hallelujah. Father, tonight I just celebrate your mastery over the details of life. And Father, I just thank you that Jesus is Lord over all, and we proclaim it in the name of Jesus. Father, we thank you so much that you are Lord over the weather, you are Lord over our nation, you're Lord over our lives, because you are the one who is omnipresent, you're the one who is omnipotent, and you're omniscient. Father, I thank you and I delight in the mastery that you have. And Father, tonight we submit ourselves to your mastery afresh, and we just say, Lord, you do with us as you please. Lord, you do with my life as you please. Father, we just want to be sold out to serve you in our lives. And Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to be free to come together tonight to hear the Word of God. We thank you that we can sit in relative comfort and hear the exposition of the teaching of the Word of God. Oh, Father, I just pray we should never take our freedom for granted. Father, because I know the day we take that freedom for granted is the day we will lose our freedom. Father, please, in Jesus' name, we ask that you will remind us constantly to pray for our nation, to pray for our Queen, to pray for the Prime Minister and those politicians who are over us, that, Father, indeed, we should uphold this nation. Father, we would ask in the name of Jesus that your word, indeed, might cover this land as the waters cover the sea. And, Father, as we come to this tricky subject tonight, I just ask for the clarity of the Holy Spirit to really be present with us, that, Father, we might understand because we are being taught by the only teacher that there is, the Holy Spirit himself. So come and anoint us, Lord. Come and fill this place with your Holy Spirit that we might learn wonderful things of you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Well, it's a very windy night tonight. But I know that we are in for a bumpy ride as well in the Bible study. Because actually we're dealing with a subject which is very difficult for most of us to comprehend because it's outside our experience altogether. For tonight I'm speaking about the eternality of God, or to put it more simply, the fact that God is eternal. Now, many people, of course, know what that means. It means that God always has been, and it means that God always will be. But the trouble is, most people think that eternity is an awfully long time. And they think of eternity in terms of time. You know, it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on, and that's eternity. They think eternal life is like that. It's an awfully long time. We use the phrase eternity like that, don't we? We say, heavens, this place going on for an eternity. But in fact, I have to tell you that that is not the correct idea of what eternality is. For eternal doesn't mean a long time. It means a, a state of timelessness, where time doesn't apply at all. And do you see why we're in for problems? Because, you see, we don't know what timelessness is like. We have some idea what weightlessness is, is like, because we've seen it on the TV when the shuttle is up, you know, the space shuttle. But we have no idea what timelessness is like. From the moment we were conceived, we've been living and dwelling in time. And time to us seems to be an absolutely fixed quantity which marches on regardless of anything and relentlessly, right? Like a stream. So time moves forward. 
And because we are who we are, and because we're locked into time, we assume that everything is locked into time. I mean, my life has been filled with moments of time. Everything that's happened to me has happened in time. Nine months after I was conceived, I was born. So even in conception, there was time marching on. At a certain point of time, my heart developed. At a certain moment of time, in the womb, I learnt to suck my thumb. At a certain moment of time, uh, my hearing came. And so, so it went on. Time has absolutely imprisoned us, and we've been locked into it. So that's how we think of it. And we assume, don't we, that uh, everyone and everything is under the same regime that we're under. So my life is made up of three parts. I have passed present and future. Now, as soon as you've got that, you're locked into time, and we think that everything's got that. We look at the sun, and we think the sun has got that, don't we? Yes, we look at uh, the plants and animals, and we think that there, they've got a past, a present, and a future. And the trouble with us is that we think that God is also locked into that regime. Well, the news I have to tell you tonight is that God isn't locked into that regime. And what is more, our whole concept of time is actually faulty. I mean, we do think that it's relentless and that it's an absolute, but it isn't. Have you noticed, by the way, that time sometimes does seem to be different? But even though it seems to be different, we know, of course, it isn't, that time is always the same. Do you know what I mean when I say that time seems to be different? Have you noticed how it varies in our experience, right? You're doing something you really love, and after three hours, you look up and you say, heavens, is that the time? I can't believe it. I've been doing this for three hours. Oh, it just seems like five minutes. And it's whizzed past. On the other hand, right, you do something you don't like, and it seems like an eternity, if you'll forgive the phrase, right? That five minutes that the dentist spends drilling in that tooth. I mean, really, you really think that hours has gone past and he's not finished yet. And so it goes on. And it just goes on and on and on. Someone rings, rings you up and it's someone you like to talk to. And after an hour and a half, you put the phone down, you say, oh, I haven't done a thing. Look at that, an hour and a half gone. Someone else rings you up that you find difficult to talk to and after five minutes, you're thinking, when are they going to put the phone down? <laughs> They're wasting my time. I don't have time to spend like this. Have you noticed how it varies? Right? You go to an hour lecture and the room's cold and the chap's boring. And after 10 minutes, you're looking at your watch saying, it can't be. My watch must have stopped. And you, you wind it, you shake it, you take the back of it, and it still hasn't done. It literally has only been 10 minutes. Oh, no, another 50 minutes ago? No. And it goes on and on and on. Do you see how relative... Uh, relative time is to our experience. You know, one moment it seems long, another moment it's short. When you're fast asleep, you don't notice time at all. You wake up in the morning, you know it hasn't been an instantaneous thing, but you're conscious that some time's passed, but to you it seemed like no time at all. In fact, you wish you could have another three hours. <laughs> a person who's in a coma, sometimes they're in a coma for six months, and when they wake up, they assume that it's everyone else that's out, you know, that they've just been asleep for a little time. Isn't it odd how time seems to vary? People who've had major accidents, they'll tell you something very strange, that as the accident is in progress, it seems as if everything starts moving in slow motion. Did you know that? In fact, some people have enough time to review the whole of their life 
before the car actually hits them or whatever it is. And many, many people who've had major accidents will actually testify that that is the fact. All right, but that's how time seems. And we all agree that time seems like that, but most of us would say, well, really, of course, it doesn't vary at all. The time is a fixed quantity. Oh, dear, oh, dear. We are in trouble, aren't we? Because one of the things we've got to learn tonight is that time is not a fixed quantity as we thought it was. And certainly when you come to talk about God, it's no use thinking in these terms in any way at all, because God just isn't locked in time as we are. Do you remember in a very early Bible study, I actually spoke about God, and I said this, that God is the only being who is absolutely free. Do you remember I said that? And most of us thought at the time that I was meaning that the devil isn't over God, that God's over the devil, and I was meaning that and that God can do as he pleases, and I was meaning that as well. But nevertheless, most of us still thought that, of course, God, like us, was locked in time. Most of us thought that is the case. But I have to tell you this, God's freedom is an absolute freedom, and that means he is bound by nothing, and that includes time. God is not locked into time in the slightest way. He is not under time's control, time is under his control. Now, this is what is hard as far as we are concerned, you see. And may I say, that means that you can't think of God in terms of having a past and the present and the future. Now, we often meet people who ask questions about God, and one of the old chestnuts that comes up is this. Well, where did God come from? That's what they say. I mean, when did God begin? Now, that is a prisoner in time talking. You see, they look at themselves and they say, well, I'm real, and I had a beginning. There was a certain moment when I wasn't, and then after the conception, I was. And so they say, now God is real as well, so he must have a beginning somewhere back there. And what they're doing, they're thinking as a bound-up person who's locked into time, and they're trying to bring God into that bondage situation. Well, I have to tell you this, you can't ask questions like that about God because God doesn't dwell in time, he dwells in eternity. That is in a state of timelessness. And by the end of the evening, I will have tried to show you what timelessness is actually all about. And this is why the ride is bumpy. Do you know that time is not absolute, even though we've thought that it was? And do you know, the ancient Hebrews knew that time was not an absolute commodity. Do you know this, that when the Hebrews spoke about creation, they didn't mean, as we mean, just the planet Earth and the universe and things like that. They actually included time in the creation as well. The Hebrews used to say this, that at the creation, God made heaven and earth, land and sea, wind and water, and time. Now, that's what they believed. And the ancient Hebrews believed that before God created, there was no such thing as time. It just didn't exist. God existed, but not in time. And I think they knew a thing or two as well. When we're thinking of creation, we tend not to think of time like that. We think, you know, that time was there, and then all of a sudden, at a certain moment of time, God said, well, now I'm going to begin creating. That's not actually what the Bible teaches. This is why this is so tough. In Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. 
And in the beginning there, you know, might refer to time. In other words, God was dwelling in timelessness and he began time at a certain time and when he began that time, then he created the heaven and the earth, but he had existed anyway, all, all the time before. You see how difficult it is even to explain it because we're so locked into time. God had an absolute existence and at a certain uh, period in his timelessness, if that's possible, he said, now time will begin. It's beyond our conception, but in the beginning, God was already. I think it's easier, perhaps, if we have a look at John 1.1, and let's just have a look at that. Now, we really are in difficult straits here, but I hope things will get clear. In John 1.1, and John's had the same trouble that I'm having tonight, <laughs> right? Here it is in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, was is a past tense. Isn't that strange? In the beginning, when God created time, Jesus already was, even though there was no time before he created time. You see, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in fact, if you ask people about this, the early theologians would actually have said, before time began, you had this quantity, eternity. And they didn't like to talk about it too much, but that's the name they gave to it. But it was a state of timelessness. In the beginning is the beginning of time, before that, eternity. And so the Hebrews believed that time began with creation. Augustine did. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, he said, before the creation there was no such thing as time. And so we scratch our heads and try and understand it. The most marvellous thing, however, has happened in these days. Up to these days, it's always been theologians that, ha that have had to talk about this quantity of time, and they've had trouble with it. But do you know today, it's not theologians who are the main people speaking about time. Do you know that the main people who speak about time and timelessness today are actually scientists, and specifically physicists? Because Einstein's theory of relativity actually talks about eternity. Now, tonight, by the way, I was going to spend a few minutes actually talking about the theory of relativity and trying to understand it. I've decided, however, since I started reviewing the subject, that A, it would take far too long, right? I don't have eternity, unfortunately, to speak about it. Uh, secondly, for most people, it would be far too complex without bringing that in. But let me just tell you this. Most people today don't view relativity as a theory anymore. They view it as absolute fact. And certain experiments have been set up which seem to prove that Einstein's theory of relativity really is fact. Now, relativity comes to two conclusions which are important to us. One, that time actually varies. Now, we can hardly believe this. To us, an hour is an hour is an hour is an hour is an hour, but what Einstein said was, well, no. Actually, time does vary depending upon the condition and the circumstances. You see, it doesn't just seem to vary, it really does vary. Now that's the first conclusion, which I'm not going to speak about tonight. The second conclusion he came to, and this is the one that's vital for us, is this. That where there is no matter, no creation, there is no time. 
Now, that's what Einstein's theory actually demonstrates and proves, that where there is no creation, there is no time at all. I've actually written a little quotation in the margin of my Bible, um, and it's a quotation from Einstein. So can Einstein spell it out to you? And by the way, do remember he was a Jew. Do remember that. And I think the roots of his theory of, of relativity actually go back to when he was a little boy and taught by the Hebrew scholars, you know, that before creation there was no time. Now look what Einstein said. This is it. And this is direct quotation. Quote, If we assume that all matter were to disappear from the world, so that nothing exists, there would be no longer any space or time. That's what he says. No matter, no time. And that is the conclusion that the divines came to, you know, so long ago. They said, before creation, there was no such thing as time. And the marvelous thing for us is this, that God is not limited by time because he's not limited by matter. God dwells outside of time altogether. Now, let's get a few scriptural references, and this thing will begin to clarify in our thinking. I told you it was bumpy at the beginning. Let's go to Isaiah 57, first of all. Right, Isaiah and 57, and this is where God lives. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of, of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Notice what it says. The one that inhabiteth eternity. I inhabit time. God does not inhabit time. He inhabits eternity. And this is why in the Bible he is often called the Eternal One. The Eternal One. That's the phrase that is used. Can we uh, just go to Genesis chapter 21 and let's see where this is used. In Genesis 21 and verse 33. And we have the Hebrew phrase El Olam. E-L-O-L-A-M. El Olam. That's the phrase. And notice what it says in verse 33. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord the everlasting God, or literally the God of eternity. There it is. This is the title that God has. All right. Now, I've tried to get through. I've tried to explain that Eternity is timelessness. However, we've got to ask this question. God dwells in eternity. I dwell in time. How does God view time from his standpoint of eternity? How does he do it? And this, without Moses, would have been impossibly complex. But I'm pleased to tell you that things get easier from here on in. Because God inspired Moses to write a psalm and in that psalm, Moses gave an example of just what eternity was like and just what time seemed like from eternity. And I'm pleased to say we can turn to the psalm and suddenly things begin to clarify and the clouds begin to roll away from our eyes. So can we turn to the psalm of Moses, which is Psalm 90? And it's verse 4 that I want, but for completeness sake... 
I'm going to actually read the first four verses. In Psalm 90, all right, and verse 1, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Isn't that nice? Thou art God from everlasting to everlasting. Verse 3, Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. Now verse 4 is a jewel. Oh, it explains everything. Verse 4, for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past. And a thousand years in thy sight is as a watch in the night. Now here is Moses talking about something that is so difficult. He says, well, it's like this. And I think the two things he gives here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are so wonderful that to me it was like a flash of enlightenment when it hit me. So, a thousand years. Now for us locked in time, that seems an awful long time. If a man had to live for a thousand years, he would be weary of life by the end. So from our standpoint, it's a huge amount of time that's gone past. But God isn't in time, he's in eternity. And so Moses says, well, what's it like for God, who's in eternity? How does he view a thousand years? He says, well, it's like this. It is as yesterday when it is past. Now, tonight is Friday, right? This is a Friday. Yesterday was Thursday, and all of you had a yesterday, didn't you? Every single one of you. And that yesterday is past. When you were in yesterday, you were locked into it, and it crawled on through the 24 hours. But today, you're free of yesterday. Do you see that? You're totally outside of yesterday. Yesterday's gone. It's yesterday. And you're free. Now, we can now look at yesterday the way God looks at all the rest of time. You think about yesterday. Now, locate it in your mind. I don't mind if you close your eyes at this point. Right? <laughs> Just close your eyes and think about yesterday. Now, it was Thursday. Think of getting up. What time did you get up? What did you have for breakfast? Was the journey to work easy or bad? Or was there a journey to work? What did you do in the morning? Lunch. Remember lunch? Is this going a bit fast for you? <laughs> afternoon? Now think of the afternoon. Yes? Tea time? Basically getting it. Yes, I remember. Travelling back in the car. That's right. And then the evening. What did you do in the evening? Was there a meeting on? that you went to? What, what, what was it? And then what time did you go to bed? Now, isn't that wonderful? Yesterday lasted 24 hours, but in 10 seconds flat, we've reviewed the whole thing. Isn't that wonderful? Because we're out of it now, do you see? So we can review it like that. And that is how the whole of time seems to God. He is able to review the whole of time in an instant, right? In a flash. Just go through it. On the other hand, something important might have happened yesterday. An event which took five minutes. And you know today you're able to sit down with endless cups of coffee and you can think about it for five hours if you want to. <laughs> it actually only lasted for five minutes, but you can think about it, well, all day, if you so choose. And so do you see, being out of time, you can actually review time as you please. You are the master now of time. Isn't this a lovely way of expressing it? 
You see? Wonderful. A thousand years in thy sight, O Lord. Why, it's just like a day that is past. That means God can review the whole thousand years in ten seconds, if he pleases. Or he can spend ten thousand years thinking about one day of that thousand years, if he so pleases, because he's outside of time. Now, is it beginning to clarify a bit? All right, if you haven't quite got that, another instance is given. Why, a thousand years in thy sight, O Lord, is like a watch in the night. Now, it doesn't mean a tick-tick watch, <laughs> right? The night was actually divided up into three or four-hour periods, which were called watches. And the people who were guarding the cities used to stand on the, the walls, and they used to have a certain period of time when they would look out for enemies, and that was called a watch. You see? Now, how does a thousand years appear to God? Well, it appears the same as a watch in the night appears to someone who's asleep. Just in a moment, it's gone past. I mean, what's three or four hours when you're deeply asleep? Absolutely nothing. And so God is able to take a whole thousand years in, in a split second, as well. Now that is a beautiful description of what time is to someone who's dwelling in eternity. Only instead of just doing it about yesterday, God can do it for any length of time that he pleases. You see, the whole history of the earth, if you like. In a split second, he can see everything. I think Moses really knew a thing or two. This is also the meaning, of course, of that very famous New Testament passage found in 2 Peter and chapter 3. <clears throat> right, let's just turn to that, and then I hope I can clarify it a little bit more. And I'm afraid I'm going to have to give one of these dreaded it-is-like pictures, which I don't like very much. But uh, this is so out of our experience, and it's so difficult, that this is the only way you can locate it. But let's have a look at 2 Peter, chapter 3, and verse 8. And some people here are uh, wondering why the Lord is waiting so long before coming. Right? Why is he waiting so long? We were expecting him ages ago, and he's still not come. Oh, dear. That's like some people you know when a fellowship prays about something, and they expect the answer next week. They know nothing about patience, which is part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Apparently, faith replaces patience now. Well, we've learned as a fellowship that it doesn't, does it? It takes time, this fellowship building, and sometimes a long period of time. And Sometimes you say, Lord, have we learned nothing? Well, God is likely to say this to us. Look at this, verse 8. But beloved, he says, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. He can think about one day for one thousand years, if he so please, and he goes on to say, and a thousand years as one day. A day as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. That's as far as God is concerned. You see? Then he goes on, and notice this, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. In other words, you're locked in time, that's why it seems a long time, but listen to God, it's not a long time. And by the way, you could put any figures in here. You could say that 10,000 years is as five minutes to God, and five minutes is 10,000 years. And because you understand Psalm 90, verse 4, you can now understand what, what this is actually talking about. All right, having said that, can we develop it just a little bit? Well, as I was praying about this, the Lord seemed to give me a picture, and it's a picture that made things much clearer to me, and even more clear than Psalm 90 had made it. 
And I want you to try and imagine, I know this is going to be very hard for you to do this, that you are a history teacher. <laughs> right? Now you imagine. And imagine the classroom that you're in, and you are there in your black gown, right? And you are the history teacher around here. And some of you who are history teachers, this will be even more difficult for you, I realize, to imagine. Now, uh, there you are, and you're going to teach a class something about world history. Now, on the wall of your classroom, you have a time scale. <clears throat> Here it is. There it is, you see. And it goes from 1000 BC, let's say, here's 1000 BC, through naught BC, or 1 BC as it should be accurately. There was no year naught, of course. Up to 1000 AD, on to 2000 AD, that is the present time. Right? So there's your particular time scale. Now, you are a history teacher, that is fixed on your wall, and on this time scale you've got every event marked and a full detailed analysis of what went on in every time period going. Now, can you see that you are actually outside that time chart? And the lovely thing is, because you're outside the time chart, you can actually take it all in at a glance, can't you? I mean, you can all do that with the one that I've drawn up here. It's a pity about this, but never mind. Um, you can take that all in at a glance. You say, oh yes, 1000 BC up, oh, 2000 AD, right. Yes, and you've taken it in. On the other hand, you can actually concentrate on one particular event, 55 BC. Or you could take a, an event here, 1940, Pearl Harbor. And you could say to your class, now, this year we'll be talking about Pearl Harbor. We're going to go into every detail concerning Pearl Harbor and the Japanese bombing. How many ships were hit, the names of the men on board the ship, right, on the ships, and so on. And we're going to spend the whole year on that. Now, do you see, that is the way God looks at time. Can you see, that is a, an example of it. And so you can take the whole of time in at a glance, if you want, or you can concentrate on one period of time and go into tremendous detail with that one period of time. There's something else you can do. You can jump about in time. That's lovely. You can look at um, um, 1440 AD or 750 AD, jump to there, up to um, uh, 1923 in there, and down here to 55 BC. You can jump about and you can actually say, now, let's just uh, have a look at a few events that actually occurred here, shall we? Well, first of all, you have this, and, and you can jump about and say, right, you, what happened here? And you, what happened there? And you're jumping about in history. Now, you're not locked into that time scale. You're completely outside of it, so you can do as you please. Now, that's the image that I got when I was praying about it, and it seemed to make things clear. Um, in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, on page 143, gives another example. He's not actually talking about the eternality of God, but I remembered this vaguely, and I looked it up, and this is his way of explaining it. Now, can I quote from dear C.S. Lewis? And if you haven't read Mere Christianity, please do get a book. It's a most interesting book. He says this, Suppose I'm writing a novel, he says. I write, quote, Mary laid down her work. Next moment came a knock at the door. Now, there it is. I'll read it again. 
Mary laid down her work. Next moment came a knock at the door. Then he goes on to say, For Mary, who has to live in the imaginary time of my story, there is no interval between putting down the work and hearing the knock. The next moment there was a knock at the door. She's locked into that. But I, who am Mary's maker, do not live in that imaginary time at all. Between writing the first half of the sentence and the second, I might sit down for three hours and think steadily about Mary. I could think about Mary as if she were the only character in the book, and for as long as I pleased and the hours I spent in doing so would not appear in Mary's time, the time outside the story, at all. Now, that's a lovely one. And so Mary's locked into time, but the author isn't locked into time. Now, that's our relationship with God. God is not locked into this time scale. He is eternal. That is, he's outside of time altogether. And this has wonderful ramifications as far as we are concerned and as far as our faith is concerned, as we'll see in a moment. There's one other point, however, I want to bring out before coming on to that. Do you notice, to the history master in the classroom... All this time that he points to is present. When he says uh, 1440, he's talking about it in the present. When he says 55 BC, he's talking about it in the present. When he says 1923, he's talking about it in the present. And this is the marvellous thing about God's relationship with time. Time to God is always present. Do you know that 55 BC is present to God? Wonderful, isn't it? God always dwells in eternity, which means that time to him is always present, no matter what time you're talking about. And this is why the main name of God that sums up eternality is the name that Moses heard in the burning bush. Moses actually said this, oh, by the way, God, he said, who shall I say sent me? And God just says, I tell you my name, he says. My name is I am. Just say, I am sent you, sent you. Now what is I am? I am is a constant presence. God always am. Right? He's in this present tense all the time. And God says, I am. Now the minute you hear that, you're not talking about someone who is in time. He must be in eternity to be I am. Do you see? And that's why we have this name. Now, many people talk about the name I am. I have to tell you, this is the first talk I've ever heard in which that's been explained. It's a name of eternality. And that's the way God always looks at it. And, of course, it was Jesus who claimed this name, wasn't it, in the Gospels. And to show you that, let's have a look at that passage. Go to John and chapter 8. Now, I hope it's becoming clearer as we go on. Sorry about the bumpy start. In John and chapter 8, and verse 56, 57, and 58. And here is one who dwells in eternity, confronting those who are locked in time. And no wonder they didn't understand what he was talking about. Now, look at this. In verse 56, Jesus says to them, this, right? And he's uh, under 33 years of age at this time. This is what he says. Why, he says to the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Oh, that's funny, isn't it? You see, let's draw another time scale. 
in time A is where Abraham lived. That's 2000 BC. Let's call the time in between B. There's B. And here's Jesus in time C. That's Jesus here. Now, nearly, well, 2,000 years is between Abraham and Jesus, and Jesus is under 33 years of age. And he turns to these Jews and he says, by the way, oh, Abraham, rejoice to see my day. Now, they're locked in time. They look at this and they think, oh, crazy. I mean, Abraham's been dead 2,000 years. He's been alive for 33, and Abraham apparently saw him. Oh, well, how can we believe that? So they put the next point to Jesus, verse 57. And these are people locked in time. They don't understand. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet 50 years old. Hast thou seen Abraham? And here's the answer Jesus gives, verse 58. Now, I would have said, well, you see, it's all to do with eternality. Um, he didn't bother. Look what he said. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. You see? Well, how can they understand? They're locked in time. You see, to a person locked in time, the order of this time is always A, B, C. Can't be any other order. You're locked into it. You were nine before you were ten, and you were ten before you were twelve, unfortunately. But that's the way that it went. Now, what Jesus is saying is, oh, before Abraham was, that's A, I am, that's C. So he doesn't have to have A, B, C. Why? He can have C, A, B, C. He can have A, C, B, A, C, 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 B. He can have any order that he likes. I am is always constant. And so he says, I am. And by the way, before Noah was, I am. Before Adam was, I am. Before the creation, I am. That is actually what we can draw from this conclusion. Now, here we get the fact that God is eternal and Jesus is eternal. Now, this is almost mind-boggling, but you see, this is what Jesus believed, and this is the truth about him. This is also the explanation, by the way, of the passages where he actually says, Before you call, I will answer. Now, to us, locked in time, that's a total impossibility. How can God call before we answer? Let's draw it out again. Here's the point before I call. Now, I'm going to call, call that X. Why is my call? Lord, why? That's my call. <laughs> and then Z is the answer we receive. Now, to me, I'm locked into that. There's a time before I ask, why, Lord? Z comes the answer. But God's outside of it. And sometime in X, God looks at Y, and he says, oh, I see, he's going to ask me why. And God can actually then spend 10,000 years, if he wants to, considering my, my question, <laughs> before I ask it. And after considering it for 10,000 years or whatever length of time or instantaneously or he already knows, it doesn't matter, I'm speaking in human terms, forgive me. God can then say, oh, well, the answer is Z. And God comes along and in X, he gives me Z before I ask why. <laughs> now, the people on the tapes will have to draw that out to understand. But that is actually something to do with eternality. Before you ask, I will already answer and I will give you the best possible answer that there is because I've had eternity to think about your question. 
And do you see why this is so absolutely vital as far as we are concerned? God dwells in eternality, yet we live in time, but that doesn't limit God at all. Because God is absolutely free, he can work in eternity, but he can also work in time, right? He can do as he pleases, and sometimes God does work in time. I'll just show you one point where he worked in time. In Galatians chapter 4, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, perhaps today, by the way, you're understanding why you've never heard a talk on eternality before. I've never heard one anyway. So, but it's in the Bible. Now, let's have a look at this. Here is God in time now. <clears throat> In Galatians 4.4, it says this, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And here, God says, there was a right time for Jesus to come. And, of course, it was 4,000 years from the fall of Adam. 4,000 years. That, incidentally, was prefigured beautifully in the Passover lamb. Do you remember that the Passover lamb was killed on the 14th day of the first month, but it was put aside on the 10th day of the first month, and it was kept for four days? And that's lovely, because God put that in to show when Jesus would come. And here it's literally true that to God, one day is as a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years as one day. And so the Passover lamb would be kept for four days, then slaughtered. Jesus was kept for 4,000 years, and then the cross came. Now that's lovely. And so when the fullness of time came, God sent his son into the world. There he worked in time. But God is free. He doesn't actually live in that time. He can work in time or outside of time. Now there's a case where God moved in time. Do you know there are also lovely occasions when God moves in eternity? Can I take you to one fascinating passage in the Gospels where we suddenly see Jesus entering eternity, right? And let's go to this. This is in John and chapter 6. John, chapter 6. As soon as we get there, you'll know what passage I'm going to read. Perhaps you've often wondered about this. John, chapter 6, verse 15 onwards. Here it is, verse 15. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And when even was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea towards Capernaum. And it was now, it was now dark and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty-four furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Have you ever seen that? Isn't that a lovely thing? You see? Jesus joins the ship, and it's very, very stormy, and it says, and immediately they'd arrived at their destination. Now, what happened? Do you think the ship suddenly speeded up and they got there? No. That would have said, and very shortly they arrived. It says immediately they did. Do you know what happened? Suddenly, 
time was eclipsed. They moved into eternity and out of eternity again, and they'd already arrived at the shore. Now, to someone standing on the bank who was locked in time, he would have seen them progress to the shore. But as far as they were concerned, they moved from the present tense, where they were in the middle of the sea, to the present tense when they'd already arrived. Now, isn't that super? And perhaps they were tired, and that's why they did it, or some reason like that. But here is a passage where you suddenly catch a glimpse of the eternality of Jesus Christ, and everyone's brought into it as well. Well, this is beyond our conception. I do believe, however, that the day is coming when we will all dwell in eternal life, in eternity, and we will all experience this timelessness. In fact, I have to tell you this, that I think this is the way that the promises of Jesus about death are going to be fulfilled in us. Have you read the promises of Jesus about death? In John chapter 8, let's read one of the promises. Verse 51 and verse 52. Now, you've got to ask, should we take the Bible literally? Is this literal? And some people at this point say, well, obviously it's not literal at this point. But I think it is literal. And this is good news for all of us. You don't have to be fearful of death anymore. Not one Christian. Verse 51. Verily, verily, this is John 8, 51. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Never. You scratch your head and say, oh, come on, I know lots of Christians who've died. This says a man will never, ever, ever see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophet, thou sayest, If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. How is it possible? There they are, landlocked, time-locked individuals, and they can't understand what Jesus is saying. Or see another statement of it in John 11. John 11, verse 26. In this Lazarus incident, if you remember. And Jesus says, And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die, believeth thou this. And here's Lazarus dead. And Jesus says, Now he that believeth in me, he shall never die. Is that the truth? Well, I think eternality is the way that we can understand this. Now, here you are, you're on the verge of death. Say a ninetieth of a second before you die. Do you know what's going to happen? You're going to see Jesus. You will be taken out of time into timelessness. So as far as you are concerned, you are never going to ever, ever, ever experience or taste of death. Never. One moment you'll be in this dying body. The next time face to face with the Lord and so you will be with the Lord forever. That's how it's going to be. Now the people standing around your deathbed who are locked in time, they'll see your death. But they mustn't ever think that you've seen it. You were the absent person from the room when you died. <laughs> now that's the way that it's going to be. Now this is great comfort to us. And the person who has died, you need to have no fear about them. They have not tasted death because Jesus promised that they wouldn't taste death. And eternality is literally but a moment away from any one of us. Oh, it's wonderful news. So we can face death with absolute assurance and confidence, right? So you're not going to experience anything like that. The terror of death, I think, is something for the unbeliever, is not something for you. You will see the face of Jesus and time will be as nothing to you, right? In your body, you were locked into the two events. The present, you were dying. The future, you would die. In eternality, you're not. 
Praise God. In the present, you are dying, and suddenly you're in eternity, and time doesn't count anyway. Now, that's the lovely thing about this. So there is what eternality is about. Incidentally, I just want to, before I get on to showing that the Father is eternal and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I just want to say one thing that you may not know about the Hebrew language. The Hebrews really knew a thing or two about uh, time. Do you know in Hebrew you don't have any such thing as a future tense? There is no future tense in Hebrew at all. Now, in English, we have a future tense. I will go shopping, right? I will finish this Bible study in quarter of an hour, right? That's a future tense. I will have a cup of tea when I get home. That's future. The Hebrews, however, never had a future tense because they knew something, that you can make all the plans you like, but there are so many factors that could change that you might never end up doing the thing that you plan to do. You could say, oh, I'll go shopping this afternoon. And what happens? You fall fast asleep in the chair and you wake up after closing time. And there you are. But you said you go shopping. Yes, but you fell asleep. So the Hebrews said, well, it's ridiculous, therefore, to ever say, I will do anything. And you know, the future for them is always put in the present. I'm shopping this afternoon. That's what you had to say you see. And simply because they believed that it's only when you were doing the thing that it had any reality. And that's absolutely right. And most of us know we've made many, many plans that just haven't come to fruition. So in Hebrew, when you're talking future, you have to use the present tense. And this is why we get this warning in James, and it's a warning we ought to keep about the future. Can we just go to James chapter 4? And I love this uh, little passage. By the way, in the church that I went to when I was first converted, we, always had, we had a man who always said the same thing on Sunday. God willing, next Lord's Day, we will gather... So and so and so and so. God willing, next Lord's Day. Or Lord willing, next Lord's Day. And that's the way he used to go. And I think, oh, he's so staid. But you know, in a sense, all of us have got to begin thinking that way. Look what it says, verse 13. Go to now... Ye that say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain, whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. And that's it. And this is why the Hebrews only had the present tense and not the future. Oh, I'll tell you something else. With God, when God was talking future, they didn't used to use a present. The present was only for humans. To God, whenever he taught future, they always used a past tense. Now, isn't that lovely? Because as far as God was concerned, if he planned to do something, it was as good as done. Now, they really knew a thing or two, these Hebrews, didn't they? And that's why all future things are in the past as far as God is concerned. He calls those things that are not as though they are. And if God says they are, they are, whether they are not or, or whatever. There we are. You see, if God says they're going to happen, they're as good as done. It is finished. And so that's the understanding that they had. All right, now let's locate just the Scripture for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Where do we read that the Father is eternal? Well, go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 17. 
And remember, as we saw in the first two Bible studies, this passage is not talking about Jesus, it's talking about the Father. 1 Timothy 1, verse 17. The King is God the Father here. I think we've been through this in those, prof in those uh, tapes at the beginning of this course. Verse 17. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now there's the Father. Unto the King eternal. He dwells and inhabits eternity. What about the Son? Jesus. Well, we read that in the Old Testament. In Micah and chapter 5, verse 2, which is a verse that you should know from the Unfulfilled Prophecy series, or the Fulfilled Prophecy series as well. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where it is predicted where Jesus would be born. And it says here, But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, or from eternity. And there's a prophecy about Jesus which definitely says that Jesus is eternal. So there we are, we've got the Son. This is uh, more proof of the Trinity, really, of course. And last of all, where does it say the Holy Spirit is eternal? Why, in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. And here it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, there it is, offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And there the Holy Spirit is called the eternal Spirit. He dwells in eternity. So there we have a proof passage for the three members of the Trinity. And the last thing I have to do for this evening is this, to ask what does eternality mean to the believer and what does it mean to the unbeliever? Now, for the believer, it means two things, eternality. First of all, it means Romans 8, 28, that all things work to the good to those who, who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, how can eternality mean that? Well, what it means is this. God, who is not locked into your life, has gazed right through your life. He's seen the beginning, the middle, and the end. And he says confidently to you, with all the facts at his fingertips, I tell you this, that things are going to happen to you. Not all of them will be good. Not all of them will be bad. Some will be middling as well. But I promise you this, that all things in your life work to the good. And he could add, because I've seen it. Or better, I am seeing it at this moment, that it is true. Now, because God is outside time, he can speak from absolute certainty. And by the way, isn't he the only one that can do that? There is no one else who can promise you that. But when God says it's so, it's so. Eternality means he can be dogmatic about it. But the second thing eternality means is this, that God can give to us eternal life. You see, before you can give something to someone, you've got to have it yourself. It's no good my saying, have a hundred pounds, when I haven't got a hundred pounds. Now, who's the only one who has eternal life to give? Well, it's someone who's got eternal life. Well, who's that? It must be God. 
Jesus has this life in himself. And so the marvelous thing is that he has given to us eternal life. What? Now or future? Well, that's ridiculous. Eternal life is timeless. We've got it now in our existence and future in our existence, but actually eternal life is beyond time. Wonderful. And here we are, because we have eternal life now, we're dwellers in two realms. We can't get out of time, we're locked into it, and yet in a most wonderful way, we're already dwelling in eternity. Isn't that lovely? Do you realize the new man in you never gets a day older? Right? Never ages at all. Not the new man. He is always the same. Never, ever, ever gets older. I was speaking to some old people, you know, at a conference uh, in Caister quite recently called The Best Years of Your Life. That's what I said. And I said, now listen, you old folk, it's time you started testifying the truth about yourself. And that is, you're a new creature in Christ and in that new man you're not getting older. Now start confessing it today in the name of Jesus. I also said you're a member of the body of Christ and the, member, and the body of Christ doesn't become senile. Right? And if you're a member of that body, I'll tell you this, there's a revelation of youth right there. Eternal youth. And we dwell as king, in the kingdom of God as dwellers in eternity. Yet we're time-locked at the same time. Well, this is beyond our comprehension. And yet we are dwellers in both. Dwellers down here, yet dwellers in that time which to us is to come, and yet already is at the same time. So there's the two things, and they're both wonderful, that come from eternality as far as we're concerned. But what about the non-Christian? I'll tell you, I thought long and hard about what eternality means to the non-Christian. And, and the thing that was brought to my mind was this fact that eternality proves the non-Christian wrong when he thinks that time deals with sin. Do you know that the vast majority of believers, uh, unbelievers think, thinks that time deals with sin? Have you heard older people saying, you know, when I was a lad, I used to get up to all sorts of things. That's what they say. Cool. Scrumpy. You know, we used to go over the... Uh, over the wall, scrumping those apples. You see? Oh, it was stealing, but of course it's years ago now. And they do it with a smile on their face, as if, well, it's a long time ago, and the time's faded the memory of it, so the time has faded the sin. Or they say, you know, I was quite a lad when I was in the Navy. <laughs> That's what they say. And that's it. Oh, well, of course, then I settled down and you know, things. And they think, well, that's it. It's a long time ago, so it's finished. And what they're actually saying is that time has dealt with the sin. But I'll tell you something, there's only one thing that deals with sin. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that deals with sin. And as far as God is concerned, those sins which in their experience occurred a long time ago, they are still present to God. And that's why many, many unbelievers will be, well, greatly shocked when they stand before the Lord and they suddenly find that to him their past is present and has to have a reckoning. And therefore I would say to any unbeliever who is blasé like that or any person you meet who is blasé like that, we have to inform them that God doesn't dwell in time. God doesn't say, what, what's that? Oh, oh, it's a long time ago. He doesn't do that. To him, those sins are immediate and they're urgent. Well, 
praise God for eternality. What a wonderful and yet very strange thing that it is. But how wonderful that it's true. And one day we are going to dwell in that eternal life. In, our, in reality, we will understand all about it right then. Praise God. All right? So tonight, I just pray you'll take these things away with you. Really ask God to give you a revelation of them, and you will suddenly realize that you may not know what's happening next year, but God is already there. And he knows exactly what's happening. He knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. And listen, if God says all things work to the good, you can have peace of mind because he does know what he is talking about. Next time, I'm dealing with the attribute of God, which is well known, the attribute of love. And we'll be seeing that God is love. Amen. <laughs>